Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth gate, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as themselves had been. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 to 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Brightest, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they might rest from their labors for the deeds followed. Fantastic. Welcome to Westminster Chapel. My name's Andy. I'm on staff here as well. Thank you, Craig. It, uh, I shouldn't point it out. It doesn't need saying, but this is Craig's first time anchoring to us, and he's phenomenal in his... Uh, there you go. I'm very, very grateful for people who follow God so earnestly. Lord, let's pray. Lords, please help us to understand clearly what you're saying, to be encouraged by the right bits, be challenged by the right bits. Holy Spirit, please work deep in our hearts and bring us to a greater knowledge of Jesus so that we could glorify our Father in heaven and we could also experience whatever it is that you want us to experience today. Let us come out of here rejoicing, rejoicing for what you've done, rejoicing for what you're saying to us, rejoicing for your presence in our lives. So Lord, please encourage those who need encouraging. Give strength to those who need it. And lift us up and build us up as Craig prayed earlier, Lord, so that we could go out of here singing and rejoicing about Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So. Uh, Get your brains working. What's wrong with the scene uh, in front of you? So here in Revelation, we've got this scene from uh, chapter 6. It's a scene in heaven. Um, John, the writer of Revelation, is uh, seeing what's going on in heaven. And here we have some new arrivals into heaven. Uh, a fresh crop of individuals, Christians from the early church, who have been martyred. They've been killed for deciding to follow Jesus. Um, let's read it again. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What's the problem here in this scene? Now let's use a bit of imaginative license. Let's meet one of these martyrs, one of these Christians who's just arrived in heaven. Let's call him Arthur. Famous uh, old Jewish name, Arthur. Um, 
he has just arrived in heaven. Now, imagine his last few months. He has had a horrendous last few months of his life. He started following Jesus as an adult, realizing that this man who had raised, been raised from the dead was truly the one to save the world, and he decided to give his life to Jesus and tell other people about his experience of Jesus. And that had made his life significantly more difficult from the outside. He was oppressed, he was bullied at work, he was encouraged to give it all up, his family were threatened. There was even a moment when he was beaten within an inch of his life and he got an infection and he had to, but no one cared for him because the local community did not offer support for Christians, people who followed Jesus. He was trying his best to look after his family, but then there was a point when suddenly a group from the neighborhood came round to his house, threatened his family, he stood in their way, and he was killed in the street. His family took him to a grave, buried him, and gave him a send-off. Now, what did they say at this funeral? They said, well, at least he's now at peace. They wrote on his grave, rest in peace. He's now managed to escape the troubles of the world and he is at rest forever. But little do they know the other side of the story. We've got a vision from heaven, Arthur arriving in heaven, and look at it. He doesn't arrive with a sigh of relief. <sighs> Finally, all of that is over. He arrives with a sigh or a gasp of exasperation. He says, as he arrives in heaven, how long, O oh Lord, before you do something about all of this? He doesn't seem to be resting in peace. He seems to be anxious about something. He seems to have been worked up about the realities on the earth. It's not this blissful, heavenly experience floating now on the clouds. So what's wrong with Arthur? Has Arthur not been listening to our sermon series over the last five weeks about rest and finding your true rest in God so that you don't have an anxious heart? Or perhaps our rest series that we're just finishing today is not really applicable for people who are truly suffering hardship. Maybe it's only relevant for those in sort of more uh, comfortable environments in the West, perhaps. Well, I hope neither of those things are true because I think Arthur is actually the person I want to learn from. As, I, as we finish this series on rest and what true rest really is and what it does for someone's soul, I want to follow in the footsteps of Arthur because I think Arthur is following in the footsteps of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about it. What did Jesus do when he arrived in heaven? Did he sit back in a very comfy armchair, sipping a pina colada, thinking, thank goodness that's over, saying to the Father, I feel really sorry for the guys you've left behind on the earth. That's hard work. No. Jesus, from the very moment he arrived in heavenly glory, has been praying for his people, has been praying for you and for me has been praying for those like Arthur who were suffering the most hard situations 
you could imagine. Constantly asking the Father, give them the strength they need. Give them the encouragement in the moment. Help them out in these circumstances. Send the Holy Spirit to give them the strength to keep on going. Jesus is always praying for you and for me. And Arthur is following in his footsteps. Now, this is pure guesswork, but I imagine the first prayer you pray in heaven is very similar to the last prayer that you pray on earth. I imagine that the prayers you pray when you arrive in heaven are similar to those at the finer ones that you pray on earth, because I don't think you suddenly become more aware when you go into heaven. I think these prayers that these martyrs are praying reflect the kind of faith and the kind of life that they had at the end of their lives. For many people, their deathbed prayers, the final month of their life, those kinds of prayers are about themselves, about their own state of rest, their own comfort, their restless prayers. Often in the final few weeks or months of someone's life, they're suddenly thinking, what is my eternal state? Where am I going to go? And their prayers are all about their own state of rest because they're anxious, they're worried about where they're going to end up. But not for Arthur. Arthur, arriving in heaven, is praying for the well-being of his brothers and sisters who are on the earth. He's praying for others because he has such assurance. And I think at the end of his life, before death, facing death, he had such assurance about his own soul, about his own state of rest, that he didn't need to worry. He didn't need to live in an anxious state at the end of life. He was free to pray for the well-being of others. And I think we see that here. I think Arthur had so much assurance at the end of life because he had received rest from God already. He's a total contrast to the man that Keegan preached about a couple of weeks ago. Keegan spoke about the man that Jesus told us about in a parable. The man who worked and strived and built and made and earned his rest. His entire life was about getting stuff, saving stuff, in order to be able to sit back and rest finally, and in an instant his life was taken from him. Now, I imagine Arthur, hearing Jesus say, these, say this parable, perhaps he even heard him live, was suddenly stunned into reality because he was surrounded by people like this, people who try to earn their state of rest, either by material gain or moral gain. Material gain, if I can earn enough money to suddenly feel at rest. If I can get, enough, get a good enough house, a good enough job, a good enough pension, if I can have a big enough family, if we can be comfortable enough, if I can do enough, if I can have enough, then I can feel at rest. Arthur was surrounded by people like that, and he was also surrounded by people who thought, if I can just be on the right side of history, 
If I can be affiliated with the right clauses, if I can wear the right badges, if I can say the right things, if I can uh, be partnered with the right ideas, if I can have the moral high ground in society and in culture, if I can do enough, then I can feel, I can feel good enough about myself. It was all geared towards feeling good enough about yourself. Either by having enough stuff or by doing the right stuff, you can end your life feeling good about yourself. And I imagine Arthur had the temptation to get caught up in all of this, as we all do. Surrounded by that, that way of thinking in society, that's the tide that Keegan spoke about. It's the drift of the River Thames that's going in one direction, that we should earn our state of rest. You should only feel able to really sit back and say, ah, finally, when you have earned it. That's the drift of our city. It was the drift of his time. And I imagine maybe Arthur lived in, that, in this and even occasionally found himself drifting. But when he heard Jesus' parable, it shocked him awake. Because Jesus gives us God's verdict on an individual like that. Because that kind of person... The man in the parable would have had a wonderful funeral. People would have said fantastic things about him, that he really made something of this world, that he really earned enough for his grandchildren, that he'd left a great legacy, that he was a fantastic individual and he was a self-made man. He would have had glowing, glowing reports about him at his funeral on earth. But Jesus tells us that the verdict about him from heaven's perspective is he had nothing. Nothing of eternal worth. From heaven's point of view, nothing of value. It was all left on earth, and now he entered heaven with nothing. And he joins the crowd of people that are actually in Revelation chapter 14 a bit later on. It says there are a crowd of people who live this kind of life, who try to earn their state of rest, on earth, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, they get a glimmer of it. They get the nicest holidays, they retire early, they have a couple of years saved up where they can spend great time with grandchildren, whatever else. They have really earned this. But then from heaven's perspective, it says, they arrive in the afterlife and are restless forever. Have you ever had that feeling? where you, it suddenly dawns on you that you got something totally, totally wrong, and it eats you up inside. You've misjudged something. You've misjudged someone, perhaps, and it's eating you up inside. You cannot, cannot feel at peace. You're restless because you just got it wrong. That's the feeling described of the individuals who have tried to earn their state of rest for their whole lives. They are left restless forever. To put it simply, the man in the parable, his end goal in life was feeling better about himself. For Arthur, his end goal in life was feeling better about God and better about other people. And that's because he had been so freed up by receiving rest rather than trying to earn it. Imagine this. This is a nice scenario. Imagine there's a woman who knows, guaranteed, every week, at the end of every week, she's going to receive a thousand pounds. Now compare her 
to a woman who has to try and earn a thousand pounds every week? Who is going to live more generously, more freely, more able to just give of themselves and of their money and everything that they have? Of course, it's the person who's assured that they will receive the thousand pounds. They don't have to focus on themselves. They don't have to always be thinking about their own needs. This is what Andres and Jonathan were speaking about in our series. A community of people who receive rest rather than try to earn it are going to be the most refreshing community to be part of. A community of people, and we would love this to be us, who receive our rest. Every week as we gather together, every time when you're meeting together as a church, regularly, monthly, whatever it is where you've carved out good ways to put yourself in a position to receive rest from God, we will become an incredibly refreshing community to be part of because we'll be so free to be able to give that rest away. Because we know, hey, I'm going to get some more. This is an unlimited deal. God is not going to ever stop giving me rest so I can just give it to others. That's the community we'd love to be. But here's a question, and this is an important question whenever you read Scripture, especially the book of Revelation, which, if you know, is slightly bizarre at times. Why are we being told this? Why are we being told what happens to Arthur? He arrives in heaven feeling a bit worked up, and then he's told, calm down a little bit, and then he's given a nice white robe. I'm imagining one of those really nice fluffy ones from a expensive hotel or something like that. And then he's told, okay, and now rest a while. Why are we told all that? It's nice for Arthur. What good is it for us? Well, I think the clue is in chapter 14. And this is kind of the main heartbeat of the book of Revelation. It says this in verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Or you could add in the patient endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here is a call for endurance. That's the point of the book of Revelation. That's the point of us seeing this scene, Arthur, and what happens to him. It's for us to be able to patiently endure. So let's just take three lessons from Arthur. Firstly, Arthur reminds us that every sacrifice is worth it. Just think about it. Arthur died in the street. I'm getting really into this character, Arthur. He's not real, but let's just imagine. Arthur was killed in the street. He was left there dead, bleeding, his blood seeping into the ground, mixing with the dirt, and then gone. His family take him away and bury him. And there's no record of Arthur. No one can find him. All that blood's just wasted on the ground. Who cares? Pointless. What was the point of all that? Why did he bother sacrificing? Was it of any good at all? And this scene tells us it was of eternal worth. Because although his blood has disappeared into the ground, we switch scenes into heaven and discover that every single drop of Arthur's blood had been kept and is being poured out on an altar in heaven. 
a sacrificial altar. It's an image of the old temple from uh, when, in the Old Testament when they used to sacrifice animals and would pour the blood out on an altar. Arthur's blood is there in heaven being poured out on the altar. I don't know how he got, God got all the blood. Maybe an angel was sent and had to dig it all up and put it in nice glass bits. And Who knows? The point is, not a single drop was wasted. Every sacrifice that Arthur ever made was recorded and rewarded in heaven. And it's not just for him, it's for all of us. It's for anyone who has died to themselves in order to follow Christ. Anyone who has lost their own life in order to gain Christ. Anyone who is regularly putting to death their own flesh, resisting the temptations that are out there and choosing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Every single sacrifice is worth it even the ones that feel totally pointless. No one's watching. Why am I bothering? Why do I keep going with this? I'm on my own. No one knows. It doesn't affect anyone at all. Why bother making this sacrifice? Every single one is known by God and will have eternal worth. Every sacrifice you make, whether that's relational whether that's personal, financial. Oh, come on, I, I just want the more comfortable life. I'm not going to give this money away. Really, what difference will it make? It will make an eternal weight of difference. Every sacrifice matters. That's what Arthur shows us. Arthur also reminds us that the priority is always mission. See, Arthur did not get killed for being a nice guy. Hey, he had a messy life previously, then he met Jesus. Now he was suddenly uh, the, the sort of nicest person in society to be around. He was a fantastic co-worker, brilliant. Let's kill him. No, that's not why Arthur was killed. It was because of the word of God, it says in the passage. He wanted to talk about Jesus, his newfound identity in Christ, what Jesus had done for him this radical awakening that he had experienced as God moved in his life. He wanted to talk about it. Now, do you think it was any easier for him in that day than it is for us? I imagine he had all of the same temptations that we have to actually, maybe I won't really talk about my faith at work. I'll wait for people to ask. Or I'll just be a really good person and hope that they, one day they invite themselves to church because they've seen how wonderful I am. No, no. Here, Arthur keeps mission priority. Speaking about Jesus, I imagine he didn't do it in an obnoxious way. He did it in a gentle and loving but persistent way. He continued to talk about his faith and he was killed for it. He kept mission a priority. Our church... The point of this church is to be witnesses of what we have witnessed. That's what we invite everyone who joins us to, be, to become a member of this church. That is the headline. We are witnesses of what we have witnessed. We're a witnessing church. Then Arthur shows us that difficulty doesn't always mean that you're doing it wrong. 
Has anyone here ever tried to barbecue a brisket? Anyone? Anyone brave enough? Now, barbecuing a brisket, I got really into barbecuing over COVID and all that. Um, and I waited, I waited, I did pork ribs first, I did some other bits, burgers, basic things, chicken wings, etc. I was building up to the brisket, watching lots of YouTube videos. And the one thing that all the YouTube videos say is that it should be at least 12 hours on the barbecue plus. You need to cook it for that long. It needs that long to really be decent. And I thought, hey, what do they know? So I went for eight hours instead. I went for eight hours, and all of them also say the second most important thing that you can do after you've taken it off the barbecue is to let it rest. And I thought, what a silly idea, let's just eat it. So after eight hours, I took it straight off, carved it up, served it to my poor family, and it was like eating a rubber tire. It was disgusting. It was so tough, genuinely we couldn't get through it. We had to leave it for another day and microwave the hell out of it. There are some things that God has ordained that will just take a long time. Brisket is one of them. Your spiritual growth is another. Your maturity. Read these verses. James chapter 1 says this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Because you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. We tried to emphasize in the first sermon in this series that the easy yoke of Jesus does not equal an easy life on this earth. That's not how it works. The easy yoke doesn't produce an easy life. The easy yoke is the way to live a challenging life. It's the way to walk through difficulty and persecution and pain and everything else. Otherwise, it's totally unrealistic and Jesus just doesn't understand the world. He's so full of suffering. There are storms everywhere. Jesus' easy yoke is the only way that you can truly Walk through the valleys of life. So here's my encouragement, just an adaptation to your prayer life. By all means, pray prayers like this. Lord, get me out of this. Get me out of this circumstance. Get me out of this really difficult workplace. Get me out of this specific situation that's really tough. Of course, pray those prayers. But while you pray those prayers, also pray, alongside get me out of this, also pray get this out of me. Because haven't you found some of the toughest times are when certain characteristics of yourself that you're not too proud of emerge to the surface. For me, it's a temper. It's getting angry too quickly. Now, if I can just remove difficult circumstances, I'm a relatively nice person to be around. So I just pray to God, look, shush, Ollie, he just gave me a, <laughs> my temper. <laughs> so I sometimes pray, Lord, just change the situation and then I'll be a nicer person. But I think God is saying, no, 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 this snake, its head is emerging for us to chop it off. Not for it to go back to sleep again and stay inside you. 
This is an opportunity for me to do some work in you. So yes, pray the prayers of the Exodus. Lord, get me out of this. God doesn't want you stuck in oppressive situations, enslaved or whatever else. But he will also use those moments when you're persevering in those circumstances to work on your heart. So as well as praying, God, sort this out, also pray, God, sort me out. But then, actually, just, just take a moment. Let's just pray, just in a moment. Lord, would you make it evident to us right now what that thing is, what the snake that's rearing its head. Lord, we're all facing difficult, different difficult situations at the moment. Sometimes the snake is so camouflaged we don't spot it. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to bring it before you. And help us in patient endurance to give it over to you, to try and die to it, to try and kill it by your power. So Lord, whatever it is for people here right now, please, please help them. Help them in this situation, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, please. Work in our hearts. Okay, so finally, what's the main reason we're told about these scenes in heaven? About Arthur and his friends and all of them arriving up in heaven and everything that happens. What's the main reason? I believe it's so that you would, we would, rest assured. I saw a headline this week. I'm sure many of you have as well. It said this, police will not rest until the killer of a nine-year-old girl shot in Liverpool is found. It was obviously talking about the horrific shooting of Olivia Pratt Corbell, uh, I think earlier this week or the week before. Now imagine if that headline had said, police send their best wishes and have issued a small brochure on how to stay safe in your own home. That would be unacceptable. No one would accept a police force like that. And yet millions of people accept a version of spirituality, of philosophy, or of God that is essentially as empty as that. The version of Jesus that's often around us would rewrite the storm story like this. You might know it. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. He's asleep. They're all awake. Suddenly, a mega storm hits the boat, and they are terrified. It is life-threatening. This storm represents all manner of evils in the world. And the version of Jesus that many believe in would wake up when his friends shake him awake and he'd say, guys, try not to worry. Here's a few suggestions on how to stay dry until the storm comes to an end. That's the empty version of Jesus that is out there. He's just got some good advice for us that will hopefully help us in our storms to just weather out the storm. A police force that cannot put a murderer in prison is pathetic. And a God who can't put a sinner in hell is also pathetic. A God who can't deal out justice on the earth would be pathetic. A God who could not defeat the powers of darkness in this world is pathetic. A God who could not speak to the storms of suffering and sorrow and screaming in this world would be pathetic. But that's not the God that Arthur believed in. 
When he arrives in heaven, he doesn't say, God, are you able to do anything about all this? And God doesn't reply, I've been thinking that myself. It's looking quite bad. There's, have you seen these nuclear weapons? They're terrifying. Have you heard about climate change? It makes the storm so much worse. I'm not sure I can do anything. No, no, no. Arthur arrives in heaven and says, God, how long? And God says, rest a while. Totally under control. What enables Arthur to rest is the knowledge that God will not rest until everything obeys the voice of Jesus. Not just the storms physically, but everything. Everything will be put under Jesus' feet. He will become king of the entire world. Everyone at the end will obey Jesus. They will do what he says. The Bible guarantees it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God our Father is so committed to that, and that's what Arthur finds his rest in. That God will not rest until everything obeys Jesus' voice. So what does Jesus' voice sound like? Think about that as the band head up. What does Jesus' voice sound like? We're in a book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has dragons that go rah, and lions that go roar, and beasts that go grr. The most powerful creature in the book of Revelation goes bah, bah. In the next chapter, or a bit later on in this one, after the sixth seal is opened, there is a scene of all of the world shaking. Mountains shake, earthquakes, the moon starts to bleed. Everyone runs for cover and hides in the caves because of the wrath of the baby sheep. It's ludicrous, it's ridiculous, and it's the good news of Christianity. Because you might know the sheep in the Bible, the lamb especially, represents the power, the ultimate power of sacrifice, the power of forgiveness and freedom. See, it doesn't require much power from God to send a sinner to hell, because the Bible's very clear, sinners are already on their way. All of us from birth were en route to hell. The Bible's very clear. We were already condemned. Where the real power of God is seen is when he saves a sinner from that destination. That was seen in Jesus' sacrifice for the whole world. By him dying on the cross. That's the power that the Lamb has, that the Lamb wields. It's more powerful than any other structure on this planet. That is the power to transform this entire world and bring it all under Jesus' feet is the message of his forgiveness for everyone who puts their faith in him. That's the message. Arthur can arrive so assured 
of his rest in heaven because he knows that he is totally clean because the lamb has died in his place. That's where you can find your true assurance in life. That's how you can be so free to give away and to live a refreshing life to others because you're so assured of your own salvation. That is the power. So just hear the power as I finish now. Hear the power in these words once again that we started this series with and we end with. Jesus says to you, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.